My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. in the HIV and harm reduction sector in Toronto. And I was finding myself over and over and over again in conversations with folks about like, how do we do this thing? How do we shift and transition in this complex time, which was filled with an enormous amount of loss and uncertainty and mounting health inequities and global inequities and all sorts of different variances. And there was really no map to do so. That's the voice of Sarah Switzer. She, Andrea Vela Alarcón, Ruben Gatsambida Fernandez and Casey Burkholder are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. People do grassroots, community-based work with a lot of different ends in mind. Organizing, research, arts, community development, education, and lots of other things. All of these involve bringing people together to do things collectively. Whether that's about sharing ideas, making decisions, creating something, planning something, taking action, or something else. People who are not involved in grassroots activities, and unfortunately even lots of people who are, sometimes fail to recognize how much skilled, deliberate, people-focused labor is required to make it successful. As you can imagine, this kind of work has its own challenges and obstacles, even at the best of times. But as with so much else, it suddenly had to be completely rethought when the COVID-19 pandemic hit in March of 2020 and gathering in person became too dangerous. Sarah Switzer is currently a senior researcher with the Center for Community-Based Research, and at the time of the work we're going to discuss today was a postdoctoral fellow in the Youth Research Lab at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, or OISE, in Toronto. At that point, Andrea Valla Alarcón was a grad student in the Youth Research Lab. Casey Burkholder is an associate professor at University of New Brunswick, and Ruben Gatsambide Fernandez is a professor at OISE and director of the Youth Research Lab. In addition to their academic and professional roles, all four of today's participants have spent lots of time in grassroots settings doing community facilitation, community arts, community-based participatory research, and all sorts of related work. Switzer started her postdoc at OISE just before the pandemic. Her plan had been to create a project that would bring together grassroots facilitators and other community-based practitioners to have nuanced conversations about their work and about social justice. With the chaos caused by COVID, however, there were suddenly a whole host of newly urgent questions that people doing grassroots work were scrambling to answer. So, Switzer changed gears. She, the rest of today's interview participants, and a number of other people created a new project called Beyond the Toolkit. They brought together people doing a range of grassroots community-focused work to talk about how they were adapting their practices to the circumstances of the pandemic in the context of having to do everything in online or remote ways. People talked about both the challenges they were facing and what they had come up with to navigate them. The conversations ranged across the logistical, ethical, political, and pedagogical challenges involved. Then the project team transcribed the recordings of the sessions and analyzed them. They used the collective insight those conversations generated to produce resources that could in turn support grassroots work in these new and difficult circumstances. 
A primary aim for the project team was making sure that their findings and the tools they created based on those findings would be useful to people actually doing grassroots work on the ground. That meant, for one thing, working quickly. Community need was urgent in the early pandemic period, and there just wasn't time to wait for the much slower pace at which academic work often happens. It meant making sure that their findings and tools were easily accessible. And it meant making sure that they were framed in open ways, so it would be easy for people to apply them in a wide range of circumstances. One way that they did this was by using visual elements as both a tool of analysis and a way of sharing their findings, in the form of illustrations done by Vala Alarcón. Both the findings and the tools are available on the beyondthetoolkit.com website. Though the pandemic continues, circumstances have shifted from the abrupt changes and rigid restrictions of its early months. But today's guests are clear that there's no going back. Online and remote tools are here to stay as integral parts of grassroots work, and they hope that the findings and resources of Beyond the Toolkit will continue to be useful for years to come. I speak with Switzer, Vela Alarcón, Gestambida Fernandez, and Burkholder about Beyond the Toolkit. I'm Ruben Gastambide Fernandez, and I am a professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and the director of the Youth Research Lab at the Center for Urban Schooling at OISE. And I'm Sarah Switzer. I'm currently a senior researcher with the Center for Community-Based Research. But at the time of this project, I was working with Ruben and Andrea and Casey at OISE in the Youth Research Lab. I'm Casey Burkholder. I'm an associate professor at the University of New Brunswick, and I'm really interested in issues of facilitation, which is how I got to be a part of this project. I'm Andrea Vela Alarcón. At the time of this project, I was a graduate student at OEC working with Ruben and Sarah at the Youth Research Lab. I ended up being also the illustrator for this project, which combined a lot of my interest in community education and cultural production. The project we're talking about today is called Beyond the Toolkit, which was a participatory project led by a bunch of fabulous folks. Today's just a subset of our team. And really it sought to explore how community-engaged practitioners were adapting their facilitation practices online during the pandemic. So community artists, community facilitators, community-based participatory researchers, participatory visual methods folks essentially folks that were working informally and largely in grassroots ways with different community groups and how they attended to the abrupt shift online and also remote. I was doing work at OISE in the Youth Research Lab as a SHRC postdoctoral fellow. I'm a community-based researcher by training and a community educator. And one of the things I was planning on doing with my time at OISE as a postdoc was to connect with other facilitators, other community-engaged practitioners to explore conversations about facilitation and social justice and to do so in really nuanced, particular ways. That was the plan. <laughs> um, the pandemic hit and we all know what happened there. And so that particular project was put on hold. And at that same time, because I'm a community-based participatory researcher, because I'm also a community-engaged educator, I was also having lots of conversations with folks that I was in relationship with. A lot of my work has happened in the HIV and harm reduction sector in Toronto. And I was finding myself over and over and over again in conversations with folks about like, how do we do this thing called like online programming? How do we shift and transition in this complex time, which was filled with an enormous amount of loss and uncertainty and mounting health health inequities and global inequities and all sorts of different variances. And there was really no map to do so. 
I was also having conversations with folks like Casey through participatory visual methods connections that I had. And we were having similar conversations. How do we lead participatory photography projects online? How do we lead participatory documentary projects online? Knowing that in a lot of these projects, it's not so much about the projects, but it's about the communities. It's about the relationships. It's about those spaces of care that unfold in any project. And so I ended up reaching out to some folks such as Andrea and Casey and Ruben. We also partnered with fabulous folks at Neighborhood Arts Network, other community-engaged practitioners, other researchers, the Center for Community Campus Partnerships at U of T. And that's what really launched this project. And the goal of the project really was to create space for dialogue and troubleshooting and to help each other sort through how we were to both transition our work in community settings and contexts, but also how we're to do so with care and an ethical responsibility, because many of us were working with a lot of communities that were unequally impacted by the pandemic, and there were really no resources or spaces of support to do so. I was also thinking about the ways in which we might be able to redistribute some of the resources that we have access to through granting streams and such into communities. And so I think that's another thing that this project was able to engage a little bit. Yeah, that's a super important piece. We were able to get university funding to pay community-engaged facilitators to do work within both public events and also bring folks into our classes to teach students. And also just think about how do we use this project and the container of the project and the resources that we had to start conversations where they weren't really happening and to support folks, ourselves included, who were really struggling during the pandemic to figure out how do we better support communities we were working with and how do we support our own facilitation practice in terms of providing those networks of care. This project was also building on a long-term conversation that we have been having about the lack of opportunities for community-based researchers and practitioners to exchange knowledge about the work we do and to reflect conceptually about how we do the work we do. The initial project sought to create opportunities for that, and then the pandemic hit and it sort of shifted focus, but it's part of a broader conversation. What was involved in turning these urgent needs imposed by the pandemic and this set of questions into a concrete project? In participatory research, everything we do, we do collaboratively. And we make sure that the work we do is done in a spirit of transparency and open conversation and accountability and care. And so right from the get-go, we set up team meeting structures with folks in lots of different roles, including community-engaged practitioners themselves, to talk about design, to talk about how we're going to do recruitment, how are we going to set up these conversations that we're going to have with folks really across the country around facilitation. This was work that was happening both nationally, but also across very different sectors and sectors that often don't come into conversation with one another. All of those decisions were made collaboratively, and that's very much in the spirit of community-based or participatory research. When we started thinking about recruiting and making this collaboratively, the first challenges that we were struggling with is how time was moving slower in the pandemic in terms of coordination, but at the same time, the project required a fast pace because of the urgency of the community needing these resources. So just coordinating the participation, coordinating all this back and forth, which usually in person will be so straightforward while having all this email exchanges made it a little bit slower and then coordinating across the country and across time zones. That definitely was a challenge in bringing the different communities together. In terms of methods, 
we created five focus groups according to practitioner type. So we had a focus group with community artists, a focus group with participatory action research practitioners. We had community facilitators, and then we had one that was mixed, and then participatory video. And we decided to group them into these categories because we thought that they will have similarities in challenges and also in terms of opportunities. And then, of course, after that, we had long hours of reading the transcriptions of those focus groups and going through the experiences again. We were really looking at exploring two things. One, how folks were adapting their facilitation practice in the context of COVID-19 and the work they were doing with communities, as well as the different ethical or pedagogical issues that were emerging. Because folks had some real valid concerns around like, what does it mean to move this work online, especially when you're talking about, you know, stigmatizing topics, or there's issues of confidentiality, folks may or may not be able to have their camera on issues of digital access and digital literacy, you know, there was just so many issues at the forefront, and there weren't any supports or resources to attend to it. And so like we could call them focus groups as researchers, but they were really kind of like interactive workshops, which were equal measure discussion, troubleshooting, sharing ideas. And we also spent quite a bit of time using online software to brainstorm and do a very quick review of like, what are the ethical issues that need to be attended to, you know, what recommendations do folks have to ensure that community engaged practitioners get the support that they need. And give, I guess, a lay focused overview of what you did to go from that raw material to the findings and outputs that you ended up with. So in any kind of qualitative research project, data needs to be cleaned up and organized and then parsed in different ways. So, you know, it gets inputted into software and we go through it and we analyzed it collaboratively. We took that preliminary analysis and we shared it with our multi-stakeholder team who helped us further refine it. So really make sure that they were accurate and in line with the spirit of those conversations that we were having to make sure that we weren't missing anything to keep the conversation going. And sometime during this process, we were really stuck with this dilemma that Andrea had mentioned earlier, which was around time. We wanted to ensure that we were sharing findings in a way that was responsive to the communities that needed it. You know, folks were asking us right from the very get-go, like, what is this resource out? We need it. We need this support. Academic timelines take a very long time, and we wanted to make sure that in the spirit of community-based research and participatory research, that we are producing outputs that were accessible and that were open access. Sometime in this process, we decided to visually illustrate our findings. It was very connected to how are we going to mobilize this knowledge in a way that it's useful for community and in a way that it's also engaging. And how are we going to make all this text and all of this information that had so many different nuances and so many different like cadences of emotions from frustration to curiosity to eagerness of the people wanting answers or wanting to experiment. And so we always knew that we wanted to do something visual, but all of that defined what that visual was going to look like. And I'm an illustrator and I would love to take this on, but I wasn't really aware of what we were getting into because one thing is to be an illustrator, but then another thing is to do it in the context of a research and also being very aware of how are we going to translate this in a way that it's not a decoration to the research, but in a way that complements the research. 
We wanted it to be something that it could be used on its own, something that it could be a resource in itself and not just exemplify what our findings were speaking about. And so what ended up happening is that we decided to do different illustrations according to the main goals of the research or main findings, which were around pedagogical commitments, ethical commitments, and ethical considerations. And the illustrations that came out allowed us to take on those nuances that not necessarily are translated in text. And when you see the illustrations, the goal was that the illustrations could also elicit a little bit of more affective or emotional and personal and intimate connections with the research. So I guess that was a big part of our methodology, if I can call it that way, using illustration not only as a way to share our research, but also as a way to build it, to analyze it even further, to have other entry points into other people, to have these conversations on facilitation during COVID. Aside from the illustrations, we also created these very short videos to share in larger spaces to get more people interested in the project and to go and see the website sort of as like trailers or inroads into the project that would bring people into the website to see more, to see the illustrations in depth and to bring those into even research methods courses. Like I teach introduction to research methods and community-based methods. And in both of these courses, I'm using the project findings on the Beyond the Toolkit website. Our project and our process very much mirrored or paralleled what we were learning from the practitioners and what was happening on the ground. And so, for example, like the participants, we were also find ourselves in this situation where we had to make use of the space of the screen and of the Zoom sort of environment to find ways to interact and to create dynamic ways of generating knowledge. And so the visual method became quite central to that, became a way to analyze data and to make sense of data it became a way to share our findings. It became a way to engage in a discussion about our findings that was open-ended and that invited interpretation instead of foreclosing it. It became also a dynamic way of sharing our work with an audience beyond just our project. So in the end, the visual became kind of a centerpiece of much of the methodology that we were relying on. Again, much in the same ways that the practitioners that we were speaking with were also finding themselves relying more on the visual to do the work than perhaps usually we would have. What were at least a few of your key findings in terms of how people doing grassroots community-based work were adapting to the circumstances of the pandemic and the issues and challenges they were facing? One of the things we found in conversations with folks was that a lot of the commitments that folks had that community-engaged practitioners were operating around before the pandemic, they weren't just important during the pandemic, they were absolutely central, especially when there were no supports or there was no map to guide this work. It was the ethical commitments themselves that helped folks make sense of where to go, how to adapt, how to make tough calls when they needed to. These were commitments of care, care to self, care to others accountability and transparency, and really being open around the lived tensions of power dynamics in the work, as well as equitable access and really ensuring that no one was left behind. So thinking about digital literacy, thinking about equity, thinking about all the different accessibility pieces that go into creating an accessible online space or a remote space, because some of the folks we are working with were working by phone or by mail. 
all of this is in the different pieces of the website and that we really want to invite listeners to interact with the website and with the findings because we can summarize. But as we were sort of gesturing earlier, a really important part of our commitment is to make the reading of these findings open, is to invite people to interact with the images and to make their own meaning of what we found through the way the images were constructed and the words that are used in there. So in terms of pedagogical commitments, a lot of the practice of doing community-based research just had to change quite dramatically. So to give you an example, when you're facilitating communities, you have to really take account of the flow of time. So the time that it takes to settle, the time that it takes to build relationships, the time that it takes you know, to move from one topic to the other, to feel like ideas have kind of landed. And in the online space, one of the things that we learned both in doing our work and in learning from the practitioners is that the online environment is a completely different time scale. So time is really fast. So in the Zoom environment, everybody arrives quickly. <laughs> Everybody's there. People can come from far away, you know. But on the other hand, the technology also slows you down. Yes, you can suddenly be in a breakout room in a way that is faster than being face-to-face, -face, but the technology, you know, the call falls, the person is muted. All of the sort of technical aspects uh, really slow the work way, 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 way down, right? So one of the really important findings is that how time flows when facilitating with communities online is very, very different than the way time moves in the actual space. There were different kinds of considerations around material resources. There's the obvious issues around, you know, who has access to technology, who has access to online tools. But there were also things like, how do we make materials available? Usually in community environments, as facilitators, we bring the materials and the materials are right there. When you are working from a distance, it's a lot difficult to make all of the materials available for doing the work. So you need other tools. You have to send things through the mail. You have to think about what people might have at home that would be usable in the same way. So the way we think about materials really shifted. And of course, the amount of work, the labor that it takes. So much of the work of community practitioners is very invisible, at least invisible to the organizations that hire them. Oftentimes, universities and nonprofits that suddenly thought that because people are working from home, they were working less or you know, they didn't have to be commuting. So therefore, they didn't have to use that time. But in fact, it was more work, right? It was more work because it required adjusting all of our practices. It required setting up spaces. It required a whole different set of techniques that needed time. And it required a different kind of labor exhaustion as well. So these are just three of the pedagogical considerations that emerged in our work. I think I would only add a piece about materiality. I used the mail during COVID-19 as a community-based researcher. Originally, I planned on doing a normal participatory visual project where people would come together in a particular space and make art together in order to investigate a particular prompt. But of course, the pandemic provided its own set of challenges where gathering in that everyday kind of way that we normally would have done became impossible or just unsafe. And so in that project, for a year, we sent packages of art supplies and prompts 12 times, so one per month to 50 participants in order to do that kind of participatory visual inquiry, but at a distance. And so it required a totally different set of materials than would happen normally, where we would just get together for a short period of time, maybe over a weekend, or maybe we'd meet a couple of times in person, but not that kind of engaged time. 
and also so strange to enter someone's homes, like to take the research space into someone's home and have them create a piece and then also to photograph it or whatever, or to share it in some way. So then a piece of their home also returns to the research space. So, so many pedagogical considerations. So in terms of all of the resources that you produced through the Beyond the Toolkit project, how are they or how do you hope they are being taken up by people doing grassroots community-based work? One of the things that we did was we hosted a whole number of live public events where folks literally came from all around the world. We hosted practitioner-led panels that also involved almost like mini skill shares where practitioners trialed out different interactive activities with the audience real time, as well as talking about some of the unique pedagogical and ethical challenges that they were encountering with their work. We also held a resource launch, which was part resource launch and also community of practice, where we opened up conversation, again, to community engaged practitioners across the globe, really, to have conversations real time. This project was really attending to challenges that folks were encountering right then in their everyday life. And so it might play a different role now than it did in the crux of the pandemic, where all of us were trying to figure out how exactly do we adapt and how do we adapt our work with care. And in terms of future directions or how folks are taking it up now, I mean, only time will tell. We really encourage listeners to go out and check out the website. We've just mentioned only a few things today, and there's some concrete tips and resources there as well. I don't think that the end of the pandemic, if we arrive at that moment, is going to make these tools irrelevant. My sense from talking to people is that online interaction is here to stay, that some things are going to come back, but I think that a lot of the work that we do is going to stay for good reasons. I think that we also learn from the work that we did that there's a lot of good things that came out of this, accessibility being one of them. You know, suddenly we were hearing from communities that people that because of accessibility issues could not participate in certain kinds of activities now could because they could do it from the comfort of their home where they had access to computers. And if before access and mobility was an issue, now it was no longer an issue, or at least it was a different kind of issue. I think also being able to work beyond geographic boundaries without the cost is also a reason why I suspect a lot of these practices are going to stay. So I think that these tools are going to continue to be relevant and salient, even as things with COVID-19 shift. I hope they are. I hope these tools are useful, even as things change. Especially because now that people are embracing this duality of engaging with the virtual and the physical, there's a lot of considerations that we still have to, well, to consider. And I guess that the tool, in a way, pushes you to think about that like privacy, how are you still engaging around issues on privacy when you're holding your community gatherings with different groups that might be in precarious situations? Or how are we thinking about the environment and the toll that we are putting on it? And so I think that the, the toolkit is framed within the pandemic, the conversations and the way that we've transitioned pre, during, and I don't know when post-COVID are going to still very salient in community-engaged practice. You have been listening to my interview with Sarah Switzer, Andrea Vela Alarcón, Ruben Gastambida Fernandez, and Casey Burkholder about Beyond the Toolkit. To learn more about the project, go to beyondthetoolkit.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>